1: everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and today I'm joined by Jesse Labov, who is the author of Transatlantic Central Europe, Contesting Geography and Redefining Culture Beyond the Nation. Her book was published by Central European University Press in Budapest and New York in 2019. I'm really delighted to be joined by Dr. Labo today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, Jessie Labo is the, all of her, uh, many accomplishments I think are across the Atlantic. She is a transatlantic person. She is the director of Academic and Institutional Development at McDaniel College, Budapest, and a resident fellow in the Center for Media, Data, and Society at Central European University. So really, my first question to you, Jesse, is if you could introduce yourself, um, talk about how this book is part of your own transatlantic life and and maybe your intellectual biography. What has has formed you to arrive at uh, writing this book?
2: Sure. Um, It's become easier and easier the more transatlantic I've gotten. So, uh, when I started out, the seeds of this book uh, lie in my dissertation, as many seeds of many books do. And when I started out writing this book in the 1990s in New York, I was an American interested in Central Europe. And I guess what was most interesting to me is why Central Europe was so relevant in American culture and politics in the 1980s. So that's what the book originally was about, I mean, as a dissertation. But then as I became more transatlantic, and first that simply meant research trips more and more uh, to the region. It meant uh, a second project on Samizdat and Tamizdat and texts that crossed borders during the Cold War. And as I became more and more invested in the politics of the region, I realized that This whole debate about Central Europe, which I originally thought was really an American conversation with some Central European after effects, was actually a very vital political conversation in the region as well. So what I tried to do with this book, um, as I became more and more invested in being a citizen of the region, if one can be a citizen of a region and not a state, uh, what I tried to do with this book. Was explained to myself not just why Central Europe as a concept was important in the 1980s and why it dissolved in the 1990s, but what the relevance was for the 2000s, what it means to have this region uh, resonate culturally, politically, um, sometimes intellectually in the 2000s. So that was the, the last goal of the book. And the last two chapters of the book attempt in different ways to reach the 2000s, methodologically, politically, uh, geographically, I extend the reach of the book from what people traditionally think of as Central Europe, the Visegrad countries, uh, to Belarus and Ukraine. Um, So I reach into the internet era in my own unique way, I think. Uh, Very few people would choose this route. But I decided that the book had to be about not just the end of the Cold War and not just the post-socialist era, but really about um, the present I was inhabiting in the region. And myself now, I consider myself a Central European who sometimes goes to the U.S., that country I was once born in. And I, I think I would even call myself an émigré now.
1: Yeah. And I think what what's striking about reading your introduction um, in which you're developing these notions of texts across borders. There's also people moving across borders, and and you're certainly one of these people. Um, So I want to ask, who are the, the actors on your stage? Are they just Central European elites, writers? Are they emigres like you? Are they dissidents? Who's on the stage?
2: I'd say the people that brought me to these ideas and to this whole play of region, state, politics, culture, literature, were the 68ers in the West. Uh, one of them happens to be Irena grudzinska gross who's really the doctor who gave birth to the project. That happens a lot. But not just her, in fact. Um, Many of her friends and colleagues that moved, I'd say, any any time between 68 and, and 78 um, to the West from the region, it was their pathways I was trying to trace. Um, Wojciech Karpinski is another person who's not very present in the book, but was one of the formative influences, um, you know, from the same class of Polish high school students that... Um, protested against the presence of the Soviet Union in Poland in March of 1968, Uh, he settled in France and had quite an amazing intellectual life there, which I never would have come across if he hadn't happened to be at NYU. And so I began to understand um, in meeting these people and in watching uh, their activities and interests in the present now in the 1990s. Um, really the impact that they had on this intellectual landscape that I was living in. And that, of course, includes the key figures of the book, the Milan Kunduras and the Milos, I mean, the people that sort of play Sandra Sage, probably the hero of the book, if you look for um, numbers of mention, would probably be Dani Lokish. Um, but, you know, they are certainly the touchstones and and the people that are the most recognizable and the people whose works are present but I'd say some of the intellectual figures in the background that had uh, just as strong an effect on the shape of it were, in fact, Irene Grudzinska-Ros, for sure, Um, Garpinski, and also uh, several Balkanists that I became very close to and attached to over the years that introduced me into different ways of understanding uh, the region from the south northwards. So Vangelis Kalypticus and Maria Todorova were two of them.
1: Yeah. And I want to ask a little bit more about your reading of Todorova and, and even your reading of Danilo Quiche. Um I want to shift the attention from individuals to journals. I think this is actually an extraordinary book um, in trying to conceptualize and, if you will, map out um, the history and, and reception of journals, which really became aesthetic political, cultural territories, communities. Um, and one of these journals that you feature is, is Cross Currents, which um, you mentioned uh, was, I think, something that that you developed your interest in from interviewing uh, Ladislav Mateka. So uh, could you introduce some of the the journals that, that you discuss in the book?
2: Sure. Um, yeah, it was one of those kind of origin stories that, you know, I was trying to learn about Central Europe and reading just random essays as you do and secondary literature of different kinds. And I, I think it, it, this might have been, even been an earlier version of the introduction, but I kept going back to the same stack in the library, you know, over and over again. And I kept going to the same shelf and the same part of the shelf. And I, it was a kind of a one of those moments when I realized that I was not just reading around, as you do, to learn about a topic, but I was actually following the editorial vision of a, a, a single editor on how to conceive of the region, which was uh, Ladislav Matejka's vision of Central Europe as represented in cross-currents. But that really was uh, the beginning of my interest in that form. But at the same time, when you learn about the region and when you study the region, you're constantly encountering other journals. So uh, if you study uh, the interwar period, you're going to be reading Scamander. Skamander, If you're um, studying the politics of the 1970s or 80s, you're gonna be reading Onyx. Um, There are journals, that's just the Polish example. Uh, Looking a little bit farther south, um, I suddenly became very interested in the journals that were published in Transylvania in the 1920s and 30s as kind of cultural touchstones and warehouses um, for the intellectual traffic that was happening between Hungary and Romania. And of course, between Transylvania and the rest of the world. Um, So I became fascinated by little tiny pop-up forms of the journal, like Periscope is a tiny little avant-garde journal in Transylvania in the 1920s. Or if you look a little bit farther ahead, uh, past the period that I focus on, I started to find, uh, let's say, internet-ready translations of this form, attempts to kind of... uh, codify the cultural imprint of a journal on the young web. Um, And I looked at a couple different instances of that. Um, One was called Anem, which was basically a kind of a newsletter that consolidated a cultural phenomenon in the former Yugoslavia as it was breaking up. So these are the, I'd say you could call them contact zones in one theoretical formulation. You could call them... um, material traces and another, um, you could simply call them a literary form which carries with it certain political and cultural implications. Um, I started to look for them across time in the region and in different spaces.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually struck by how you bring in the interwar journals, especially the Transylvanian journals um, like Pastortus, that is a journal I have to admit I never heard of. Um, into things like the New York Review of Books, and then some, you know, some that are a little bit more mainstream. So, how, how is it that you detect this continuity? You actually, in many ways, go back to forms like essays and traditions like the Enlightenment and the Republic of Letters, without skipping over symbolists and surrealists and so forth. Postertus was so interesting, I think, because it it was absolutely eclectic. It had visual art, fiction, poems, essays, even even plays. Um, I don't know if this is a question, but I I think that in trying to look at aesthetic movements, I'm I'm really interested in in following your your trajectory. Was there a kind of logic to this?
2: Yeah, so... That choice of looking at the Transylvanian example, which is very strange for many people that think this book is about Poland, and maybe the Visegrad countries, but certainly not Transylvania, it came from an effort to find what happens to texts, especially to this form of the essay in the journal, when a culture finds itself in immigration, and this was kind of a thought experiment. If we could think of Transylvania after 1920, after the Treaty of Trianon, when it suddenly becomes part of Romania and not Hungary, as a culture in that state. Now, there were many um, rather strenuous arguments with editors of this book who happened to be from that region or from Hungary into calling that moment a moment of emigration, because, of course, nobody moved anywhere. but simply the border shifted over people's heads. But what interested me was that suddenly they were outside of the nation, beyond the nation. That's part of the long subtitle of this book. And the dynamic I was looking for was not just what happens in a single journal, but what happens to the diasporic world of communicating through journals. So in that case, with post and Periscope, Horizont, these different Hungarian language um, journals that all found themselves in a very small geographic space I found proof of something I'd also seen in the Polish post-war emigration, and I still see everywhere I look, that journals find their identities, and people writing in journals find their subject positions in a kind of a dialectic, you might say, or at least a dialogue with other journals. So, for example, if I'm going to be the avant-garde journal, and someone else is going to be the journal that keeps the nationalist flame alive, let's say, um, Horizont, then Pastor and a third journal might come along and say, I want to occupy a middle ground and sometimes head in this direction, westward vanguardist, and sometimes head in this direction, uh, aggregating Hungarian culture in emigration. And an easier way to see this, I mean, that's a very complex example, might simply be in uh, the contrast, the dialectic, I call it, between. A Polish emigre journal like Kultura, which is the most famous one, the Pariski Kultura, this uh, kind of silo of Polish culture right, in, exactly. uh, right outside of Paris. And that's a
1: good description. Yes.
2: Yeah, and Giardimoschi, uh, which is the not a journal, but in fact a, a newspaper of a kind, an emigre newspaper, um, but which has similar cultural ambitions, um, located in London, right across the channel. And the argument which I try to develop in this book is that you can't understand one without the other, that one had to kind of hold Polish culture up as a conservative nationalist tradition for the other one to move away from that. So that's what I'm looking at and how these journals form. And then that also might even impact how somebody writes in a particular journal. The voice that they use in that journal has to do with that larger picture and larger tension between one Let's
1: say political cultural position and another yeah i mean i'm tr- I was trying to imagine this is very sort of linear linear and old fashioned, but I was trying to imagine a political spectrum for a lot of the interwar journals, and then to see in the post war years, especially in the Polish context how many how many of them were still what I would regard as as nationalists or, or maybe conservative national would be a, a better a better way of getting at that. Um, did you think this way? Did you think of, of sort of aesthetic politics or political culture or the politics of individual writers in this particular
2: way? Absolutely. And um, I think it's what I kept trying to understand the whole way through the book. I mean, it's interesting that you asked that question because I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but I was simply trying to untangle this, this swap that happened politically between Grydzewski and Giedroyc for a long time. When I look at the two figures uh, in the center of this Polish post-war story about journals, Grydzewski and Giedroyc, what's fascinating about them is the way they flip positions. So during the interwar period, Giedroyc is the one who is the nationalist conservative who's interested in some of the questions about the lands to the east because of his origins there, um, but is not really a part of what we might call a, a kind of a glitterati literary scene, um, more of a political scene. And in fact, it was Grizevsky who was a part of the vanguard circle and occupied that salon spot um, in his publishings, in his friendships, um, in his promotions at that time. And I try in this book, I don't know how well I do it, but I really tried in a couple different ways to trace their trajectories after the war. So they each had amazing stories during the war, as people from this era did. But then after the war, they find themselves in these parallel metropolises uh, between Paris and London. And because of the politics of the post war period, they do switch positions. And it is, in fact, I think, uh, Giedrich who becomes more open, and in certain political ways, progressive and accepting of both the left and the right, whereas Wiedemosti, the role it played, it's not just Gryzewski's personality, but in fact, the role that it had to play in London with that diaspora and the politics of that diaspora that made it more and more conservative and more and more closed to Poland and Polish writers. So that's my explanation for how it is that Kultura really becomes... The lighthouse, the silo, many, many different metaphors we could use, but kind of the embodiment of Polish culture outside the nation. And Wierdemoszczy ends up being more or less just a newspaper. Yeah,
1: I, I actually think of it in maybe even stronger terms, almost like gatekeeping. I know this has a really negative connotation, but it, it is, correct me if I'm wrong, um, at least for Kultura, they, they are in many ways catering, right? to diaspora politics. And, and the majority of the diaspora is, is usually pretty reactionary and, and, and nationalist. Is that different for the journals, especially the Polish post-war journals? How, how do you measure that?
2: Well, so this is a dynamic I got really uh, tangled up in. And that ended up being the Reading culture from a Distance project. And here's where, quite accidentally, um, my digital humanities intervention rears its head because we had these, I think I had these uh, assumptions going into reading cultura that it was essentially either you can call it gatekeeping or curatorial or editorial kind of, um, guarding of a certain elite culture and reproducing it outside of the nation. But as a, uh, a protected space that the larger politics of the diaspora really couldn't touch. And if you think about who publishes in it, that makes a certain amount of sense. And so my assumption based on the people I'd met and things I'd read was that the dynamics of the journal were that everybody who was kind of you know, already through the gate and in the inner circles, friends of the Chomskys, friends of Giedrich, that they would be the ones to publish there with a couple of uh, later on in the later decades um Channels that opened up in in different directions, but basically, like if you hadn't heard of them, they wouldn't be publishing there, or they might be publishing under a pseudonym, but we knew who they were. And I thought that this larger, what we might think of as nationalist, um, somewhat isolated diaspora was totally not connected to that picture. Uh, and that, in fact, what I had assumed was that they weren't that interested in what was happening in culture. Yeah, you know, they might order it, so it would sit on a coffee table at some cultural center where they were all meeting to, you know, dance and eat Polish food and uh, celebrate their, their Polishness. But as I got deeper into the study of the journal, I discovered, strangely enough, um, that these people were involved, these people that we think are in the, the wider diaspora. And the way I figured that out is because it's not just people who wrote letters into the journal who are still kind of usual suspects, but people that sent in these small donations from all over the world, and you really see when you start to track where these donations are coming from, a real global diaspora of Polish culture, so way outside of the usual intellectual centers we imagine. And okay, so perhaps they just felt the need to support it financially, that says one thing, but when we get into the later decades, into the 1970s and 80s, what I find is that this larger, wider diaspora is actually using Kultura to try to send support, small amounts of money, what they can afford to the dissident movements in Poland. Um, And they're trying their hardest to reach them through this journal. And I just never quite saw that kind of um, connection between the diaspora politics and before I really looked at these small donations to Kultura. So it just changed the way I thought about it.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, and and I think in in developing this distant reading um, together with your digital humanities um, training and background, and I think innovativeness, um, is it different to have a journal which is you know sort of like read for free, not for profit, than Let's say the New York Review of Books. It has its first issue in I think it's 1962 or 1963 um, with with subscriptions. I mean, is there is there something you know in these Tostia Giornali, these thick journals that, that that sort of change when you know editors and publishers realize that that they can make a buck from it, make 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 profit.
2: Well, the good news is is that no political cultural journal ever worth reading ever made a profit ever. A <laughs> New York Review of Books like is certainly, <laughs> certainly in that category. I mean, it was just a financial disaster from the beginning, I think, and it probably still is. No, I, I'd have to check, but it's not. The point is, is that um, they only exist, as far as I imagine it, um, as a way to generate cultural capital. And, of course, some fundraising has to go into them. And, you know, there were subscri- there were actual subscriptions to Cultura as well. It was not just single donations and money from shady sources. Um, they had subscribers, and that did support them. And, of course, the work of maintaining a journal is very much, in part, a business. If you pay no attention to it at all, um, you know, of course, it can't sustain itself. So you have a figure who's a little bit like... Uh, the president of the university, on the one hand, whose main job it is to keep the university um, financially stable, although remember, never profitable. Um, (laughs) But on the other hand, uh, you have somebody whose job it is to enhance the reputation of the university, um, in this case, the journal. Um, And that happens through this incredibly intricate cultural network. And I saw that really in detail up close talking to Matejka, to Ladislav Matejka, because it was fascinating to hear him talk about how money happened to come by sometimes to support the journal and what he would do if it didn't. Um, You know, it was almost like blind luck sometimes and a lot of personal connections and networking that allowed it to sustain itself financially. What he spent much more time and energy building was the intellectual network of people that would be contributing. So his network of translators like Paul Wilson, his network of um, contributors, uh, like every esteemed Slavic professor working in the country in Canada or the U S in the 1980s, Um, certainly his network of people that could smuggle texts from the region out uh, that's actually what kept that journal alive and current and interesting. Yeah, And, and I don't even think New York, sorry to interrupt, I don't think New York, New York Review of Books ever once was trying to do anything different from that.
1: Well, you, you mention it, and I actually will just read this part because I think it, it's a revelation. Um, for those of us who are specialists and read footnotes, it's important. Um, but maybe for those who are sort of unin, uninitiated, you, describe at some great length um, Mateka and his frustration with the New York Review of Books for not reviewing cross currents. And you actually write, um, and I quote, the only mention of Mateka's yearbook in the literary journal, this is New York Review of Books, is a footnote to Milan Kundera's essay, The Tragedy of Central Europe, published in the April 26th, 1940, 1984 issue of New York Review of Books. And these are Mateka's words, quote, I had to pay quite a lot of money for a while, for publishing ads in the New York Review of Books announcing it. I paid over $1,000 for it. One day they discovered that this was not really fair, and it became a little cheaper, but that was all. They never reviewed the publication, that, unquote. I mean, that's, he sounds pretty frustrated there.
2: Yeah, I, I should add, for context, he was frustrated by his relationship with Jacobson. He was frustrated by his attempts to make this journal survive. And even after it moved, he was frustrated by the fact that nobody except me ever showed any interest of it in it afterwards. Although I can tell you sort of anecdotally that when I speak to people of that generation that published in it, I mean, they start talking about it like it was one of the most important cultural phenomena of the 1980s while they're talking to me. And then they go back to their lives and forget about it. But his frustration with the New York Review books, his frustration with this mainstream refraction of Central European culture, if you want to put it that way, or the mainstream refraction of the post-68 reimagination of liberal humanism, (laughs) um, is that they didn't always recognize some of the origins and some of the deeper connections, I think, to the Central European intellectual movements. For example, um, there were a lot of connections to be made between New York Review of Books and Partisan Review, And for probably pretty understandable reasons, when you know American politics, those weren't made explicit. Um, The people writing in Partisan Review were, all of them, refugees from our region. And, you know, this, I would call it not just a intellectual trajectory, but an ethnic trajectory and a regional trajectory. This was not made explicit. And I think it felt a little bit like a rejection to the people from the region that identified with it.
1: Yeah. And and you you mention actually the resistance. Quiche is one example, but there there is certainly resistance from a lot of these writers to reduce themselves. They they really don't want to reduce themselves ideologically and, and politically. I read that as, as the strength of anti politics, but maybe you read it Differently. There, there were other writers, you know, Susan Sontag, Philip Roth, Salman Rushdie, who were, who were trying to introduce them as Central Europeans, but there's this constant resistance to being like pigeonholed into um, a writer of a small country or, uh, you know, a, a sort of marginalized language. What, what are your, some of your impressions?
2: Well, there's two directions to go with that. Um... The one I take in the book is pretty explicitly about this subject position held by an essayist. Someone who wants to set out a space in which to talk about culture and politics on the same stage as anyone else and not to be reduced to a symptom of a geographic or historic accident right so when this form of the essay arose uh, in the 18th century let's say let's say in england and france let's just say that um no one really had to explain where they were from that wasn't the point it wasn't geographically specific yet when someone from i'll call it our region because i know you share a deep interest um in the hybridity and the transnationalism of that region. When, when someone from that region speaks, they're expected to really uh, identify their coordinates. Um, and I think the tension between this universalist idea of writing from an open agoric space and not to be reduced to the sum of your identity politics. And then, of course, as we know, the deep investment in historical truth and historical meaning that all of these figures were invested in. Right. That's what makes these essays so interesting. And that's what Keisha is up to. You know, on the one hand, he writes something like his birth certificate, which is a joke about, Oh, you try to write my, bi- bi- you try to write my biography. And this is what happens. He gets scrambled into almost a meaningless um, jumble of toponyms, but then he writes, as we know, um, short stories, short story cycles, um, novels that tell historical stories. Um, so I think there, that's one way that I try to take it in the book. Uh, a totally different way, and this is a very contemporary reading, and this has to do with what, the politics of the present. Right? And by that, I don't mean the 2000s. I mean the 2010s and the 2020s. I think one of the great mistakes... Of the 1990s and the sort of institutionalization of the term Central Europe in, let's say, an institution like Central European University, was the insistence on open society and Central Europe being more or less contiguous ideas that were universal ideas, and that this region was now going to join a larger universal concept of what an open society should be.
1: Do you you think that is a symptom of the crisis of of liberal humanism? You do mention this several times and you have this very interesting concept of the workaround, which I'll, I'll let you define, but it seems you know working around problems like working around the exclusion of, of russian writers there are these international writers conferences where there is a very very serious exclusion and conversations that are actually in many ways like about post colonialism not happening or that that should be happening to to the degree that one might imagine now um, as far as i can see there's is almost no discussion of of lgbtq issues among The writers who would call themselves Central Europeanists. So I I wonder if this is part of the sort of crisis of of liberal humanism. It seems to be propped up at the very moment um, for the Central Europeanist community that it's 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 falling into something else um, in the West or across the Atlantic.
2: Well, to put it really frankly and baldly, and I've been tempted to do that a lot recently is the gap between this liberal humanist idea of what Central Europe is, which is not necessarily one I subscribe to, for some of the reasons that you mentioned, right? It doesn't allow more fluid ideas about identity that I might want to embrace now into the picture. certainly has nothing to do with women's presences or intellects. (laughs) Right. But that idea, the distance between that idea, and then this whole, I would even call it neoliberal liberal program that pretty much f- followed the transition and set itself into place in the region as to what liberalism would become. The gap between that two is mm-hmm. you know, what, what really causes the crisis that we're facing today. There's no answer to illiberalism. The only answer to illiberalism is, like, freer markets, and that's clearly not going (laughs) to help. We don't have the liberal humanist response. It's gone. There was no humanities faculty at Central European University because that project didn't think it was relevant. Yeah.
1: Yeah and and you refer to this in your last chapter if i can return to this work around problem so mm-hmm. you you have mm-hmm. again i think from from digital history and digital humanities which i'd like you to talk a little bit more about you refer to it after 1989 as transmedial workarounds what do you mean by that
2: well it means a couple of different things one is a, a really a kind of a formal question which is all right, now that we don't really have these cultural political journals in exactly the same form that we used to, I mean, they do exist, and they're here and there. And I can, if I look for really hard, I can find examples of them in the present. But because our receptive pathways have changed, people who wanted to express themselves in this mode, in this subject position, had to find a workaround, had to find another way to do it. And so I look for some of those in the internet era. Um, I look for how people position themselves online in this way. And then the other way is a political workaround. Um, So some of these dynamics that I mentioned in the post-socialist transition era, and by that I really mean the 1990s, not even the 2000s, together with the dynamics of what's happening in the former Yugoslavia led to a search for a new political positioning that was very much, I'm just saying the obvious here, um, against a nationalist perspective. So this workaround was how do we then create an identity which is um, not part of any of the earlier regional identities, not necessarily part of other understandings of what it meant to be Balkan, in this case, but also not part of a nationalist one. So, you know, I borrow the term from the digital world because it also has to do with um, a certain attitude, a certain anti-authoritarian or, say, anti-proprietary sometimes, um, anti-corporate attitude that you find in the 1990s in open source movements and floss movements, that is looking for a way around all of the received institutions. And I try to combine all of that in these last two chapters. And sometimes I think it works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I'm finding a phenomenon that seems to really fit that paradigm. Sometimes I'm stretching it, but it is an enormous thought experiment. And I'll I'll just like, I'll accept the consequences of that. (laughs) I don't really have yeah, a problem. No,
1: I, I, I think it works, Jesse. I mean, I, I think in many ways what you're talking about seems to be the pessimism of the 2000 teens and the illiberalism of the 2000 teens writing against the, the sort of like techno utopia and, and libertarian dreams of the 1990s. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned, um, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but works like by Yevgeny Morozov, which, which came out in 2011 I mean, these these were critiques of the idea that you know new media, internet, or internet revolutions would would result in greater and greater freedoms. Like we were sort of you know following the the Hegelian path to some um, moment of, of of wonderful liberation. And I, I wonder if if it's one decade writing against another, or am I just being too simple
2: about that? No, I was so obsessed with these references in the 2010s. Oh, during the Arab Spring as well, when people would compare it to the Central European Velvet Revolution, I would just, uh, you know, clutch my arms and scream. (laughs) And the reason is this, right? The path dependency, the techno-determinism, it's just, it's it's stomach-churning on the one hand. On the other hand, um, sort of the... This is what I object to in this in this basic what I call a, a neoliberal idea of what an open society might be. Um, it depends entirely on received forms of liberal culture from the west and it's not geographically or regionally specific. it doesn't take into account any of the history or any of the cultural specificity of that region. So I can tell you a much more personal story, which is simply that you know I was the intellectual child of people that were classic liberals and taught me the dissident canon through those eyes and some of the people I mentioned earlier in this conversation. And at the turn of the 2000s and 2010s when we get you know effects of the financial crisis in the region I mean everywhere but maybe Poland a complete devastation it just almost killed my inner liberal and I had what I think one of my most absurd Um, conference presentations was right around that time, around 2010, where I performed the death of my inner liberal, just because I couldn't, I did, I did. It was like a Mark Antony speech where I talked about liberalism and, you know, instead of burying Caesar, we buried liberalism. It was very theatrical. I can't even like, I'm actually embarrassed to think about it now, but I did do this because I was so worked up about, you know, I was very much engaged in uh, the new leftist, uh, understanding of the region represented by journals like uh, Left East and a working group on post socialist uh, approaches to the region and I at the same time was struggling with this intellectual legacy that I had been given. and so what you find at the end of the book is me trying to kind of reconcile all that, but just personally, I just saw the devastation and and how much the like you put it so well um the region had been seduced by the fiction that introducing capital via all the ways that we know shock economy, um, (laughs) subprime mortgage lending, um, yeah, was dangerous.
1: Yeah. And, and I, you know, I want to ask you for hopeful messages. Um, you do find some organized experiments and you do talk about this in the last chapter and in your conclusion. So, is is the answer as you see it? And I know I'm asking you this question because you're in Budapest right now. Um, do you, do you see in text across borders hopes for translators or people who are doing, you know, more offline work than online work? Or, or how how would you reconcile that? I guess it's more of a question about ex- experimental writing and experimental journals do you you still see that as possible after the Arab Spring and after Tahrir Square and after Maidan
2: you know I was going to be looking for it this month because you know again I'll give you two answers I was supposed to give a talk at Yale next month which I guess I'm not going to give because I guess we're not going to have this particular meeting of people at another kind of classic reconvening of people that work on the region. And it's called, you know, another conference called The Other Europe. And um, it was uh, Vitaly Chernetsky that invited me and Edita Boyanowska, and they put it together. together. And I, I was just going to go on in my way about the region and all the things I'm interested in. They said, no, 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 we want you to talk about contemporary cultural production. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I was going to talk about politics and, and digital things, but no, no. So I had to revamp my ideas. And I was going to do this project, which I still will do at some point, talking about cultural centers. And the title of the paper, which I'm not going to give, is called The Other Centers of Europe. And by this, I mean, not geographic centers, but actual cultural centers that have become uh, like artistic refugee camps for people that are beaten down both by political changes and by market pressures. So you have centers like in Budapest, we have Trafo, which is somewhat supported by the state and is certainly allowed to exist, but is an umbrella for all kinds of different alternative cultural activity. And I started to make a kind of a, well, first digital, but then also conceptual map slash diagram of, the roles that these places play in the region, and not just in Hungary, but in Ukraine, Slovakia, you know, the kind of a network that goes through Romania, certainly all over Poland, and in smaller cities. So not always in the capitals, because smaller cities are sometimes better places to have such activity. So it's not an underground movement or anything like that, nothing that organized. They're just cultural spaces that are created, and I, I think of them as kind of umbrellas for cultural activity. Uh, you might have a festival come through and have a larger outcropping, but often it's just kind of how the local artistic scene expresses itself, given everything. So there's a yeah. piece of hope for you.
1: Do, do you see that happening in Hungary? We haven't talked talked a lot about um, you know former Yugoslavia or Bosnia or Southeastern Europe, but you know, I mean, Radio for Europe is, has started, is starting again in Hungary. It, will these activist communities take on take on different forms in towns and, and regions and countries? I mean, th- this is you know again another reconstruction of an aesthetic political territory, which is a kind of virtual group or virtual
2: space. I would call them anything but activist. There is activism. There are new political parties like Momentum being formed. And there is a generational turn towards activism for sure. I don't know the story of how that will happen in Hungary will play out. But I'm watching it and I'm very happy to be here to watch it. I'm actually talking about something more like an anti-politics. Something more like um, a commitment to living as if. And I see it in academic worlds. I see it in cultural worlds. You know, I'm a part of this big uh, research project which is funded by the EU called um, NAPE for Descent. It's basically a study of cultures of descent, um, mostly during the Cold War in the region. Uh, But one of the big topics that's emerged from this 80-person strong research group is the focus on the gray zone. So another way of putting what I'm talking about is looking for the gray zone of activity in Hungary, in Poland, today? Where is it that people are making space? In corners of official institutions or in uh, associational life, in new forms of civic life, and not space for political protest, because uh, that's not really that productive right now in this region, but rather artistic engagements sometimes that carry with them a lot of the seeds of alternative culture. So the off-biennale is a great example of how this works in in Budapest. Uh, It's basically an apartment and small gallery um, placed biennale that is absolutely uh, made up of independent culture that has no relationship at all to the government or to any uh, large corporate identity, which is not easy to pull off these days. So that's an example.
1: Yeah. And and I would imagine the regime interference, you know, this is something that's also quite constant. Is, Is it something that you notice?
2: It's so bizarre. It's pandemic, to use a touchy word, in Hungarian culture, yet it keeps rearing its head and then in some way symbolically retreating. So I'll give you two examples. Um, in 2010-11, right after uh, the second fetus regime began, uh, we were introduced to all these new structures of media regulation and a new film board and a new media board that was supposed to oversee all media production and essentially like a slow process of state capture. But it actually took about seven years to happen. The first three years, there was this board established, but it didn't do anything. You know, Western journalists, so to speak, were crying, you know, to the skies about how this was essentially kind of like a 1984 scenario. I mean, on paper it was, but in practice it wasn't. Um, That's one example. Another one would be the recent um, transformation of the Academy of Sciences, which is deeply political, and people have lost funding and hope. So... I'm not trying to say that it is not a reality, but what's happened is kind of odd, which is on the one hand, we had this enormous moment of state capture of the academic world. And um, it seemed that no work would continue that had been going on for the last 20 years. And actually what happened was state capture, but then the work continues. And I'm sure it will slowly but surely be shaped into the image that the government would like it to be in. But at the moment, work is continuing and people are being funded again and positions are opening up again. For example, mine, um, even under this new moniker that is now dissociated from the actual Hungarian Academy of Sciences. Um, So another way you could put that much more simply, and um, I think it's an easy way to see it, is that The state capture is insidious and invidious, yet life goes on with people working around it. And what are you interested in
1: now? What are your new projects and new interests?
2: Well, I mentioned one of them, which is kind of, this might be my more cultural activism side, uh, trying to understand the role of these contemporary Cultural centers and alternative culture. You could even add to that maybe a kind of a, a new leftist approach to the region. Uh, part of that picture is trying to understand the new shape of higher education. And in fact, I'm going to be running a panel um, at next year's MLA and hopefully something similar at ACES on um, sort of uh, academic autonomy in a liberal times, you know, what it means to be academically autonomous, and I'm trying to make an argument that that's not just about um, pressure from the state, but also pressure um, to privatize. So the kind of traffic, global mobility and the traffic of, of, of students from one part of the world to another. And then on the DH side, I've got a massive media geek, media archaeological Project which just needs a couple million euro funding to really make it. Um, <laughs> that's all, uh, which is reading um, the telexes of Radio for Europe, uh, the telex communications. And I want to do this through network science. And I've been working on this project for five years, actually, weirdly enough, but in very small doses and doing little pilot projects. And the biggest issue, of course, as we all know, anyone that works with digital materials, is OCR of old, nasty kind of printouts of mimeographed, and then microfilmed telex messages. So that's, that's like my geeky side. And But what I'm trying to get out of that is um, it's more like the Reading Coulter from a Distance project. I'm trying to find a new way to do digital history, taking text analysis into account, and actually re-understand the way that RFE worked in the region this way. I don't know if it'll work. I just need a couple million euro, and I'll tell you.
1: <laughs> well, I, on that note, I think we can start by hitting up our um, listeners and donors and small contributions um, in the tradition of, of dissident journals and Sommies Dot and Tommy's Dot. Um, I'm Stephen Siegel. I'm your host here on the New Books Network. Um, and you've been listening to Jesse Labov, who is the author of Transatlantic Central Europe, Contesting Geography and Redefining Culture Beyond the Nation. Um, Her book was published by Central European University Press in Budapest in New York in 2019. Thanks, Jesse, for joining us today on the New Books Network.
2: Thanks so much for having me.